Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Uh, so every once in a while, I'm sure this happens to Tracy too, uh, but in this case, this happened to me, a potential topic will just sort of keep putting itself in front of my field of vision. And today is one of those. It's a topic that came up randomly in a discussion with my husband one night. And then the next morning, we had a listener mail request for it from our listener, Rachel. And then a day or two later, uh, we, my husband and I were watching a, a making of short film about the design influences in the Disney movie Wreck-It Ralph. And it came up. And then one of my friends offhandedly mentioned it uh, as well. And so at that point, I felt like I we clearly need to talk about this topic because otherwise it's just going to keep poking itself into my life. I, I don't really believe in, you know, fate, etc. But I, you know, universe, if you're trying to send me a message, I got it. So we are going to talk about an architect who is pretty well known. Uh, his work has left an indelible mark, particularly on the city of Barcelona. And that is Antoni Gaudi. Uh, and I can tell you right out of the gate, this is going to be one of the best episodes for us in terms of Pinterest content of all time, because there's so many beautiful pictures of his work. And if you think that you do not know Gaudi's work, I would actually bet that you do, even if you do not recognize his name. Or in the case of a lot of people, they recognize his name and they know he was an architect and they even know maybe some of the buildings that he worked on, but they don't kind of know the whole story there. Uh his work, which is part of the Catalan modernist movement, is incredibly eye-catching. It's really creative. It's unlike almost any other architecture you will ever see. It often shows up in lists that will appear online of, like, crazy buildings made in history that, you know, they look super ultra-modern, like they were crafted, you know, in very recent history. And, in fact, they're quite old. Uh he built residences, he built public spaces, he built places of worship, and all of them are really, really incredibly breathtaking. And so uh, for just a little bit of background, the modernism movement or modernism, if you just want to uh, do the slouchy version, ran from around 1880 to World War One, and it developed in tandem with the naturalism movement and the arts and crafts movement and aesthetic, as well as Art Nouveau. And so you'll see hints of all of those uh, echoed throughout it. And it combines the ideas of traditionalism with the usage of modern technique and really modern materials. So that's the setup for talking about Antony Gaudi. Born on June 25th, 1852, Antony Placide Guillem Gaudi Cornet was the fifth child of Francesc Gaudi Serra and Antonia Cornet Bertrand. The father, Francesc, was a coppersmith, and Gaudi's mother was also from a coppersmithing family. Gaudi would later on say in his life that his ability to perceive space and to think three-dimensionally came from watching his family members at work. Yeah, you know, watching them sort of build these various metal pieces really gave him a sense of how things go together and... Uh, his family tree actually traces back to the south of France. So one of his fraternal ancestors settled in Reus in uh, Catalonia, Spain in 1635. So they were there for quite some time before he was born. Gaudí's actual place of birth is kind of debatable. Uh, some biographies say that he was born in Reus, Spain, and others say that he was born in his family's country home, which was in between that city and Reudon. But we do know for sure is that he was baptized the next day in Reus at the Church of St. Peter the Apostle. 
Yeah, and part of the reason that there is a little bit of debate over his birthplace has to do with the fact that he is really a very beloved figure, and I think everybody would like to claim him as a son of their city. Uh, as a child, uh, he was actually plagued by health issues. He had a, rheum- a rheumatic issue that limited his mobility, and that meant his interactions with other children were also quite limited. He had to ride on a donkey to get around, and walking was really too painful for him to manage much of it. And it's likely, if you look at it through the lens of modern medicine, that he had juvenile idiopathic arthritis, also known as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease which can cause damage to tissues and severe inflammation of the joints and a really great deal of pain. The arthritic condition, which held Gaudi back socially, left him lots of time to himself. And this is often credited as the reason that he developed this incredible set of observation skills. As a boy, basically sidelined by physical problems, he just watched the world around him and really focused on drawing and observing nature. And while his school attendance was spotty because of his medical condition, Gowdy did enroll as a student. He first started at a rooftop preschool near his home, and then uh, at the age of 11, he entered a school which was housed in an old convent. And he kind of started to do pretty well in his studies, particularly in geometry. He did really, really well, which is not a surprise since he talked about his sort of innate uh, ability to perceive spatial relations. And he wasn't really a star student, but if you look at his school records, there's a, a clear upward trajectory in his grades over the course of his studies. He kind of got better and better as he went. As he matured, he seemed to improve physically enough that mobility was not as much of a challenge for him. He eventually turned to a vegetarian lifestyle as a way to help manage his health, and he adopted the habit of taking long, regular walks. And during his time uh, at the Escalapian School, which is, is that school he attended later, he really started dabbling in design. So he started illustrating the school newsletter, which is called El Arlequin. And he also started working the school's theater department, uh, doing set design for them. He also, at one point in his, his sort of high school years, hatched the scheme that he was going to restore the ruined monastery of Poblet, which he did not do. But that project was undertaken in the 20th century by another group eventually. Gaudi was deeply religious as an adult, and some believe that this commitment to his faith really started at school. Then the architect himself even said as much, crediting his time there uh, as the point where he realized the value of divinity and religious history and the potential for salvation through Christ. Yeah, it's interesting reading uh, different accounts of his life in preparation for this. Some say he really wasn't very religious as a kid. Others say he was. Uh, he seems to have not exhibited a particular fervor of religiosity at that age. But according to him, it was still going on in his head. He was still thinking about all of those things. So before we get to the next phase of his education where he moves away, uh, do you want to take a quick word from a sponsor? Let's do. Stupendous. So jumping back to the life of Antoni Gaudi, uh, after he finished secondary school, he decided that he really did want to seriously study architecture. And so he traveled to Barcelona in 1869, where he first attended the Provincial School of Architecture and then the College of Science in order to fulfill a series of needed prerequisites before he could move on to the Advanced Architectural School. And when he moved to Barcelona, his brother accompanied him. His brother was studying to be a doctor. 
His performance in these preparatory courses was a lot like it had been in his school record in his younger years. He missed a lot of classes, spending his time in the library instead, which uh, I can empathize with that. Uh, his grades were okay, but he had an occasional spike on specific subjects. Clearly, he had skill and talent, but maybe not always focus. Nonetheless, he did eventually move on to the Upper Technical School of Architecture. And in addition to his architecture courses, he also opted to take classes in subjects like philosophy and history and art. And he came from the mindset that understanding the social and political aspects of any culture was key to understanding that culture's architecture. In line with that approach to things, he'd sometimes draw in atmospheric elements before any actual architectural design on his assignments. There's one story that when he was tasked with designing a cemetery, first he drew a hearse and mourners to set the scene. He often left teachers scratching their heads as to whether he was a genius or kind of deranged. Yeah, there's one uh, quote that I saw at some point, and I didn't include it verbatim, that um, when he finally received his diploma, that they had written something to the effect of, you know, you're either the greatest genius of our age or a madman. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of how he was generally perceived. He was definitely outside of the box, even as a student. And in 1878, he was finally recommended by the director of the Upper Technical School of Architecture to be officially given the title of architect and to graduate. And apparently, Gaudi already considered himself an architect. And he told his friend, uh, Laurent Matamala, that he had, in fact, been an architect for years. Now, this might sound like jerkery. And Gaudi was by all accounts, pretty pompous. He also had a temper, but in truth, he had been working for builders in Barcelona for years in order to finance his education. From 1873 to 1877, he was often collaborating on commissions with his teachers. And I find that sort of fascinating. I didn't uh, find a lot about how common that was, but it seemed interesting to me that a lot of his professors and his teachers were kind of like, we don't know what to make of you. But we would like to work with you, even though you are still a student. Uh, it seems like a, a kind of fascinating situation. Um, and in 1875, he served as a draftsman for master builder Joseph Foncer y Mestre. He worked on Barcelona's uh, Cutadella Park under Foncer, and he would continue to work with the master builder well into the 1880s after he had set up his own firm. Starting in 1876, he collaborated with his professor, Leandre Saralachimas. Their work together included designs for a never-built Villa Arcadia. In 1876, Gaudi also worked with the company that developed and built Barcelona's tramway. And then he collaborated as a draftsman with his professor, uh, Francisco de Paula de Villar y Lozano, on the Monastery at Montserrat. Even so, he wasn't officially an architect until the title had actually been bestowed upon him, which it was. He immediately had fancy cards made up that said so. <laughs> I kind of love that. Uh, but before we talk about uh, the next phase, we're going to kind of backtrack. There's some overlap in the timeline here. Uh, we're going to talk about his military enlistment in the first years of his professional career. But before we do that, uh, let's do another quick sponsor break. So... Even before he was formally recognized as an architect, uh, Gaudi was actually also serving in the military, and this was compulsory for Spain's young men at the time. And in fact, military service was compulsory in Spain until pretty recently, like in the 2000s. 
He enlisted in 1874, and he was assigned to the Barcelona Infantry. Though the third Carlist War was underway while he was enlisted, he never saw any kind of combat because of his medical conditions. He did serve as a military administration assistant in the last year of his three years of service. And because of his medical leave, so he did still have arthritis, even though it was not as debilitating in terms of his mobility as it had been when he was a child. Uh, and he was able to kind of sit out a lot of normal military service activities. He was also able to continue with his studies throughout his entire enlistment in the military. In the previous segment, we mentioned several of the projects Gaudi was able to work on while he was in school. And 1876 was a particularly busy year. However, it was also a year of great personal loss. In July of that year, his brother Francesc died suddenly, and in September he also lost his mother. After Antonia's death, Gaudi's father closed his business and he moved to Barcelona to be with his son. Yeah, their family history is actually quite tragic. Even though Gaudi was the youngest, uh, he had two of his siblings died as children and his other two siblings died fairly young. The other we'll mention a little bit later, but... So at this point, this was really all that they had left of their family. Uh, and once school was over for Antoni, though, he really shifted into his professional life, and he did so in style. We already mentioned that he had fancy cards drawn up almost immediately. He established his own architectural firm immediately after being granted the title. And he became something of a dandy. He was always extremely fashionable. He moved in society circles. He was always impeccably groomed. He was kind of enjoying the life of a young professional. Though his star was on the rise, Gaudi retained a strong connection to the working class. One of his first large-scale projects was a workers' housing project that was intended to improve the quality of life for its inhabitants. It was called the Cooperativa Mataronense. He was also commissioned uh, early on in this first year by the city of Barcelona to design lamp posts. These were prototypes for gas lights, which were intended to light the city's highway. Gaudi's vision for the co-op was pretty ambitious. It featured a small two-bedroom home for each worker, as well as leisure and cultural areas. Only one of the homes in a small section of the factory made it to actual completion at the time, though. The social club he had designed for the co-op never broke ground. While his grandest plans for the co-op weren't fully realized, he continued to work on projects for many years. Yeah, he the Cooperativa Mataranense stayed pretty near and dear to his heart. He worked on a lot of stuff for them for a long time. And he also presented the plans that he had made for the co-op project at the Paris World's Fair in 1878. And this work got a great deal of attention, and it really put Gaudi on the map. Also on exhibit at the World's Fair that year was a display that he had designed for a glove shop. So he kind of had two different styles of things. One was his grand design scheme, and one was this sort of cool display that he had put together. And Gaudi's work that he did and that was on display there at the World's Fair really piqued the interest of Catalan entrepreneur and industrialist Eusebi Guel y Basigalupi. And after being introduced at the fair, the two men became lifelong friends. Guel would also be one of Gaudi's most lucrative clients and eventually his main patron. In a stroke of good fortune for Gaudi, Guel seemed really unconcerned with the expense of supporting such a creative mind's efforts. At one point while working on a home for Guel, the cost had kind of startled the project's bookkeeper to the point that he thought he should probably intervene. 
He showed this massive growing pile of bills to Guel, hoping to stop the money outflow. But Guel is said to have looked at the papers and said, is that all he spent? Yeah, he was pretty forgiving of this uh, kind of, you know, extravagant tastes. And I mean, it was paying off. He made really beautiful things. Not a problem. Uh, and in the late 19th century, as all of this was happening, Barcelona was really in love with art and intellectualism. And it was also experiencing a huge financial boon thanks to a very busy and successful textile industry. And in fact, that co-op that Gaudi had been working on was intended uh, largely to house textile industry workers. This prosperous economy and the hunger on the part of the bourgeoisie to be seen with artists and famous people really turn into the perfect environment for this young architect. And before we get into all of the sort of exciting things that happen and some of the huge projects he ended up taking on as a result of his growing esteem, uh, we are going to end part one. So you'll have to wait for the second part on this one. Do you have some listener mail before we take our break? I do have listener mail. This is from our listener. I think her name is pronounced Sherry, but it's an alternate spelling, so I apologize if that's a mispronunciation. And she writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I wanted to thank you for your recent podcast on the eggnog riot at West Point. I had never heard the story, but found it depressingly unsurprising as a tale of young men and alcohol. Afterwards, I double-checked our family history, and yes, my husband's great times three grandfather was a freshman there that year, although he was not among the 19 named. I found this a little amusing because his family was already a bit skeptical about his choice to attend. They were a passionate, strict New England clergy family, more focused on souls and salvation than military matters. A couple of excerpts from letters between his father and grandmother earlier that year illustrate this. They're below. There's no mention in the letters that I can find or elsewhere of their reaction to the riot, but I don't imagine that it was a pleased one. And so she includes this letter from uh, William Patton, father of George, to William's mother, Ruth Wheelock Patton. And this is... uh on January 29th of 1826, and he writes, I am not yet convinced that it was best for G to be fixed at West Point, to be qualified chiefly for the army. It does not accord with my views or wishes. He has, however, made application of himself and procured many letters of recommendation. If he should receive permission to go, it may be well for me to acquiesce, though I have done nothing to promote the object. And then Ruth's response to him uh, two months later is, I hope our dear G will be prospered, though his call seems to be out of our line. I'm informed their religious privileges are good at West Point, and they have a worthy chaplain. Your son will have the same God to protect him as he has here, and perhaps as good associates. I hope the young gentlemen who are to accompany him have good characters, and that a blessing may attend them. I love that letter exchange so much. It's so sweet. I like uh, it, too. And apparently George went on to have a successful 34-year career in the Army, so it did go well for him. Uh, and uh, Cherie goes on to write, Mostly unrelated, Ruth Wheelock Patton ran a school with her daughters and another son in Hartford. The female stu students learned embroidery along with other subjects. And you can see examples if you do a Google image search on Mrs. Patton's school. 
The subject has been explored by Susan P. Scholwer in Connecticut Needlework, Women, Art, and Family, 1740 to 1840, and with Needle and Brush, Schoolgirl Embroidery from the Connecticut River Valley, 1740 to 1840. I totally want to read those books, by the way. I have not gotten to yet. Uh, she says, Scholwer makes some interesting observations on needlework styles traced through maternal lines and relationships among women in different families. Thank you for your work. Best wishes for a happy new year. That is such a cool letter. I love that she was able to give us that exchange because, as I said, it's so charming. I love that the grandmother's like, look, he's going to be who he is. We can just (laughs) hope for him to have blessings. I think it's so sweet. I love it. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so. We are at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also touch base with us on Twitter at History, at Facebook.com slash History, and on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We are also on Pinterest.com slash History, and as I said, I'm going to have a heyday with Gowdy work on Pinterest once these episodes air. Uh, if you would like to purchase Missed in History goodies, you can do so at MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com, where you can get shirts, bags, mugs, iPhone cases, Android cases, other things to delight and wear in. Uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com, type in the name Gaudi in the search bar, and that's G-A-U-D-I, and you will get an article called 10 Most Famous Architects Who Ever Lived. He really is quite well known to many people, although I'm often shocked when I mention him and people give me a blank stare. Uh, if you would like to visit us at our home, you can do that at mistinhistory.com. So there we have show notes. We have all of our episodes archived. You have the occasional blog posts. Come and visit. You can do that at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.